Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is July the 15th, 2022. The world seems to be particularly disordered today when you look at the headlines. Uh, they really are quite chilling. On the one hand, uh, Joe Manchin, the swing vote in the Senate now has decided not to vote for Biden's climate agenda, which means nothing will change in America. And therefore, given, I think, America's role in the world when it comes to global warming, nothing probably that much will change in the world itself. Meanwhile, in Europe, uh, on Monday, it's predicted London is going to be hotter than Dubai. All over Europe, there is a record deadly heat wave. Uh, European cities, according to CNN, are setting all-time temperature records. We have the classic photo for people watching of a man sitting with his head in his hands in a European fountain. I guess there are worse places to sit, but it sounds incredibly miserable. Um, all the stats are dreadful. The drought in Europe for people watching um, is becoming increasingly um, catastrophic. Uh, the same is true of warming trends and of drying. So generally, the disorder is chilling, troubling, to say the least. So where are we going to find some order? My guest today might be able to provide us with some. He's an eclectic uh, scientific academic, and he has a new book out, Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define human life. He's joining us now, Salim H. Ali. And uh, Salim, welcome uh, to Keenon. Um, how would you Thank make you. sense of what seems to me, at least, to be the disorder of the world in July 15th? On the one hand, complete political paralysis in the United States. On the other hand, uh, we seem to be on the verge of quite literally an, econ uh, an environmental meltdown in Europe. Yes. Well, thank you, Andrew, for the opportunity. Uh, in terms of this um, notion of earthly order, what I try to argue is that we've for too long been talking about new world orders, which is a very politically defined concept. Uh, and it's often divorced from some of the fundamental laws of nature and the constraints which natural systems impose on us. And so what earthly order argues for is a, is a connection between natural order economic order and political order. And uh, what I've tried to do in this book, which I felt has been absent in some of the earlier writings, is to make a connection there between the foundational knowledge which we need to understand the constraints of environmental systems and then see how they also are operationalized in a political sense. So, for example, when we talk about climate change, Often people are aware of climate change, but they're not quite literate about what are some of the foundational reasons why we have tipping points around the climate. Why do we have to think about irreversibility of decisions? Uh, how do we think about energy density, for example? So one of the reasons, just as an example with Europe, currently uh, they have had this uh, policy of phasing out nuclear power, for example, after the Fukushima 
disaster in Germany, particularly Germany had made a drastic decision to phase out nuclear power. Now, that decision was very much an emotional decision that came out of a political context where the uh, the domestic politics felt that this was the right thing to do. However, from a natural order perspective, if you are concerned about climate change and you do not have baseload power generation capacity and you want to also reduce your um, fossil fuel footprint, you can't do it without having some kind of a much more considered phase out of nuclear power or potentially even increasing nuclear power. So I'm not pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear. I'm just saying, look at the constraints which you have within the system of electricity delivery, and then you can you define your political order accordingly. And they, they had to learn this lesson the hard way. Well, that's why well, last let, let's, uh, so, so I take your point. So the book is divided into three parts. You begin yeah. your first part with a natural order, then what you call economic and social order, and then political order. Let's come back to Europe and the current environmental crisis there. Mm-hmm. Where does the disorder get reorganized? Where does yeah. this begin? Is it in what you call a natural order? Does it come with economics or does it come with politics? Another interesting piece, a slightly more encouraging piece of news is that Bill Gates has pledged today to donate virtually all his over $110 billion to his foundation, which is focused increasingly on um, health challenges and the environment. So does this come through economics through uh, or through politics? I'm not sure how it all works. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, the book uh, talks about complex systems, which is a field of interest more generally. You may remember there was a best-selling book more than 30 years ago called Chaos, which was about how complex system science emerged. And the reason that book was so successful was because there was a realization that many times chaotic systems actually lead to emergent order. So there's this kind of a yin-yang between chaos and order that happens in natural systems. So just the fact that we have disorder now does not mean that we could not have an emergent order which comes from that, as long as we provide the structures which allow for that to take place. So democratic systems themselves can be fairly chaotic and disorderly, uh, but they can lead to emergent order if we have the right information systems which can inform the decision-making. If we have the right transparency mechanisms, which prevent the the corruption of the system, if we don't, then they can lead to further disorder. So that has been the challenge within the. So, so how do you read? What, what what's your reading of American politics? So we have it's, a single it senator. Utterly, whole... It's dysfunctional. It's dysfunctional because. Right. So, so let me finish. Uh, let, let me finish, yeah. Salim. We have a single senator holding up uh, all environmental mm-hmm. policy. We have the Supreme Court taking incredibly unpopular decisions on gun control and particularly abortion. How does it change? I mean, I, 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 I'm intrigued by this idea of natural order and political and social and economic orders. But when it comes to American democracy, it seems as if the whole disorder is incredibly hard to fix without either civil war or revolution or some other huge um, destabilizing event. No, I don't think we need to go that drastically. I think you can change the American political system by having some guardrails around how 
the political decision-making operates within a democratic context. Right now, what we have is um, a kind of a, a majoritarian system around uh, the, the way the, the, the two parties dominate. And you do, there are structures that have prevented a process whereby you could have more science-based decision-making. So for example, this is the first time we have a science advisor at the cabinet level uh, position. Unfortunately, the person they selected got into trouble and had to be um, you know, taken out for bullying. So that position was dysfunctional, but it's actually good that we had that position elevated. I would hope that would create a greater opportunity for elevated decision-making that's predicated on science. Uh, we also need to figure out the other uh, reform effort which is needed is, I think, a much more foundational learning process within Congress so that people are much better uh, understood. The hearing process we have in Congress is, is partisan, so you do not actually get the right kind of information presented. The people who are chairing the committees, they they choose certain people who are going to present their own perspective. If you had more independence in that process of information going through, you would have better decision-making. The other problem no, we I, have is- I, I played some of your points, Salim, but we've yeah. had so many shows. Everyone says the same thing. Nothing ever changes. Uh, no, a science in, in the Biden administration, whether or not that particular uh, uh, official was effective or not, it's not going to change the um, toothlessness of the, the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. uh, it it mm -hmm. sounds to me from what you're saying and the language you're using that maybe there's a little bit of a, a technocrat there too, that you yeah. see mm -hmm. technocracy as a fix to many of the problems with democracy. But is tech, are, are technocracy and democracy, are they compatible? Does one have to Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. How? I, I, I mean, can you give me some examples of systems which which combine technocracy and, and democracy, perhaps Singapore? Yes, I think technocracy, we shouldn't shy away from calling technocracy for what it is. It's basically informed decision-making, which applies science and the constraints of natural order in the context of politics. They, unfortunately, we tend to stigmatize terms. There's nothing wrong with technocracy in that regard. The problem is if technocracy is used as an excuse for autocracy, which can happen. You gave the example of Singapore. In Singapore, because of the dominance of certain political elites, that has happened to some degree. But still, you are right that they do make decisions much more based on technical information. China itself is not a democracy, but they have noted that they, they're, you know, the Confucian system has generally been much more technocratic in terms of how they bring in uh, knowledge into decision making. But the, the other part of it, which I would argue that is... Uh, problematic is that we, we do not have some limits as to when decisions are made and at and in time sensitive context. So the litigation system in the US is so pre you can go on litigating to the point where what you are litigating for the time has passed for the issue. And this is what we're seeing with issues around environmental litigation with so many other forms. So I think we also need some kind of guardrails around that. Europe had to do that again last week. They waived environmental impact assessments for uh, liquefied natural gas terminals because they realized 
that they just do not have the time to deal with the litigation that comes out of certain kinds of assessment. That's a sad commentary because environmental assessments are important, but we had corrupted the system so much with excessive litigation that they've had to make this drastic uh, decision because they need the LNG, otherwise they're going to be dependent on Russian natural gas and they cannot now abort the phase out of nuclear power because they've actually fired all the people who are going to be working in the nuclear power plants. And they, even if they wanted to bring them back, they can't, they have either retired or they don't have the human capital to run the plants. So that's an example of another kind of reform which could prevent this kind of uh, system of a failure. But that's not viable in the United States, is it? That kind of reform. We do that all the time. The... We have eminent domain regulations. If someone wants, if the government says they have to put a, a water pipe, you know, through your property in certain cases, they have eminent domain to do that. We can do that with energy decision making in certain cases where they, this is not reducing the importance of environmental deliberation. I mean, I, I have worked on impact assessments and I value them but they have been corrupted to the point where they are just used as an obstructionist tool. And so I think that's a very tangible reform which would align natural order with economic and political order. And we, we have mechanisms to do that at the local government level. We can, we can certainly make that case with, and we, we even do that. I mean, we, we have executive orders which pa are passed to waive certain kinds of authority and so on. I mean, these are important cases which will need to be brought forth within the political system. We're doing it with care in a bipartisan way, because both sides in the US will recognize soon enough that this is becoming a challenge if we really want to move forward. Uh, yeah, I, I respect what you're saying, Salim, but you sound like a scientist talking about politics as if politics should conform to some sort of natural system. I've been living in this country now for about 40 years. Everything you've been saying uh, has been true, almost as true 40 years ago as it is today. Nothing's changed. Things are getting worse. In fact, when you talk about local government, we did a show earlier this week with someone who suggested that local government is becoming as as partisan and divided and corrupt as, as, as federal government. I still don't understand. I mean, you keep on talking about these natural systems. I don't understand where it's going to come from unless it comes mm -hmm. from politics and from political will. One other piece of good news, in addition to the, the Gates news, is that George Monbiat won the Orwell Prize for Journalism, very much deserved. He was on the show a couple of weeks ago talking about his new book, Regenesis, which is rethinking the very nature of agriculture. Mombiat is a political activist. Surely all this starts, Salim, with politics, that it requires mm -hmm. grassroots level organizations, new political parties, new political thinking, if anything's going to change. Yeah, I mean, you need convergence, you know, of both the grassroots and the political system and the, the politicians. I mean, the other thing that a lot of organizations like the American Association for Advancement of Science have argued is we need more scientists in government. You know, right now, more than half of Congress is lawyers. We have very few scientists. In fact, they've started a campaign now to get more scientists active in politics. You have people like Rand Paul who are dentists or other medical doctors and so on who claim that they are scientists, but they're not really trained in empirical scientific research. There are very few who have that claim in terms of being legislators. So I think that's another important 
uh, aspect of how we could make this change and the concerns you have in a tangible way. I'm very practical, you know, I'm not a pie in the sky academic at all. Uh, and I, I am very conscious of the limitations. I mean, I, I, I started off my first job was actually I interned in the UK House of Commons when I was an undergraduate student. And um, I, I, I became very interested in the political process through that, even though I was a chemistry major. Uh, but but that's how I, I see this. I mean, I really want it to be. I don't want to pontificate over it. There are these tangible ways we can make a difference. Do you have models? I mean, examples from yeah. history of how this worked in a in a broad way, I mean, you 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 bring up some more granular examples. Do, do you see ways in which the then what you call the natural order and the economic and the mm -hmm. social order and the political order they were all sort of realigned seamlessly together, one through the other in history? Well, I mean, it's a recent development that environmental issues are being raised at that level. I mean, they have historically been low politics. You know, war and peace were high politics. So it's not surprising that we don't have many grand examples. Uh, this is what we need now. And that's why I think the book is so timely. And in fact, I am so committed to the goals of the book. I'm donating all the royalties for environmental literacy programs. I feel, in fact, we've got a lot of environmental awareness, but we don't have environmental literacy. And it goes back to that issue of, you know, a little learning is a dangerous thing. You get people with sound bites and shallow information, and they can craft an argument around it without really going deep into actually seeing what the constraints are. And so uh, I would say definitely there is a, a way forward. There, one example, I mean, my other country of citizenship is Australia. And Australia has some examples whereby they have tried to uh, bring in a, a, you know, a much more considered approach to a scientific decision making. And the political system is also a little bit more aligned to uh, having representation because they have compulsory voting. They have other ways in which they can have a, a broader political canvas um but even there they have problems i mean they're, they're the, the issue is that the government is constantly unstable and other things with reference to the parliamentary system but uh in terms of what you're saying with decision making being based on certain parameters uh we we, we are wrestling with some of those uh, aspects also in canada they have tried to do that uh with uh, some of the decision making around phase out of different uh, fossil fuels, but they have run into trouble in Alberta because of the um, the dominance of the tar sands uh, industry. So, you know, there will always be push and pull factors in that regard, but we it, it's something that really needs. One other argument I made is the G7 countries, and now we have one year till the next G7 um, summit in Japan. They could have a, a unified approach to this. And they try to develop some mechanism whereby the G7 say, this is how we're going to have science-based decision-making uh, and, and how we're going to reform our legal systems to allow for that. We've done that with trade regimes. We can certainly do that with environmental regimes. What do you think scientists like yourself can learn from politics? I think what you scientists... wanting to sort of impose no, a no, scientific <laughs> natural order on the world, perhaps... Yeah. Scientists have something to learn from politics, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think scientists can be very arrogant about the way in which uh, knowledge is acquired. There's many times 
knowledge on the street, which is just as valuable from the common public. I think scientists need to be democratized in terms of how they gather information. So one of the things I've argued for is politicians are very good at, you know, getting the, the as in democracies, they're very good at getting at the beat of the population. And scientists can do the same with knowledge acquisition. You know, we have this notion of citizen science or community science, where, where scientists are now being uh, much more deliberate and using democratic systems to gather knowledge. And that's politicians do a great job with crowdsourcing of funds, for example. I think uh, scientists can use the same for crowdsourcing of information, of crowdsourcing also of, of learning about certain issues. You know, like, for example, public health concerns. Um, one of my friends from PhD days, uh, he did his dissertation, a guy named Jason Coburn, who's now a professor at uh, Berkeley, he did his dissertation on um, uh, how you gather information on health impacts from people who are otherwise uneducated, but they understand information in terms of the impacts because they're living there. And he came up with this notion of street science where you are able to get that information. So yes, we can learn from politicians. Uh, and this was in you know the areas in parts of New York where uh, you have a large Hispanic population uh, who are otherwise marginalized, but they could be a great source of information on health impacts. Salim, do you think we need perhaps a new political party, maybe the science party or the technocratic party? Do we need to make these arguments more explicit? Currently, the ideologies yeah. certainly of the two major parties in America seem at best out of date and sometimes just absurd. So maybe yeah. it's the thinking, the foundational thinking that needs to change in politics. Would it be healthy to have a science party? Well, in Australia, we could actually make it happen because in Australia, the political system allows for minority parties and you do have them like the Greens have done very well in Australia uh, and you could have a science party. And there are some moves towards certainly climate science oriented parties. In U.S., we have structural problem, which is not allowing for third parties to exist. Now, Andrew Yang is a, a glimmer of hope in that because he comes from a more technocratic approach. You know, he's very data driven. And he's saying he's going to develop that. Let's see if he's able to. That's the only glimmer of hope on the U.S. scene I, I would see. I mean, and I have had disagreements with Andrew Yang on other matters, but I applaud him for being tenacious on trying that. And, and that, that, that could be a prototype, but it may require some structural changes within how we run elections and allow for this primary system and all to play, uh, play out. And whether we need ranked preference voting rather than having just this kind of voting system where you choose one person. That's the reason why in Australia it's possible to have minority parties doing well because you have ranked preferential voting. Now, you do have that at the state level in the U.S. Certain states um, do have that, like Alaska, Maine, others have preferential voting. But if we did that at the national level, it may well happen. Salim, let's say where we begin with the current environmental crisis, at least this week's environmental crisis of a terrible heat wave and uh, historic mm -hmm. uh, heat waves in, in Europe, worse than or higher than higher than uh, ever before, uh, certainly yeah. since recorded um, data. How much worse can things get before the whole system literally breaks down? I mean, you're a yeah. systems thinker, yeah. you think in mm -hmm. 
natural orders, you think in economic and social orders and political orders. Every time, every week, every month, the crisis seems to get worse with fires and drought and dislocation and flooding and the crisis of food, now the crisis of heat. Um, At what point does the whole system just simply break down? Well, I mean, you know, one of the the arguments in earthly order is that order can be discovered and invented, you know. So first of all, there, there are multiple futures which we could have. And I think we shouldn't be sensationalistic about saying that the whole system is going to break down necessarily. Human beings have shown tremendous adaptive ability. I think what we should be asking, is that the future we want? Do we want a Blade Runner world? Do we want a water world kind of, uh, you know, Hollywood scenario in the future? Or people still adapted and some survived, some didn't. But rather, so I think that unfortunately what we do is we make such a radical sensationalistic argument that then the opponents come out and then they say, no, we told you so we were able to get over it. So like with the heat wave in Europe, I think we are, the headlines are a problem. We shouldn't be saying, oh, you know, like Dubai will be uninhabitable or, you know, certain cities in Europe are going to be uninhabitable. And that that doesn't make sense because if you go on the winter side, there are plenty of you know, cities like London and Paris would be uninhabitable in winter without adaptive infrastructure, right? We need heating. That's why we have the problems with the winter coming up with Russian dependence on gas. So surely we can adapt on the other side as well in terms of developing infrastructure. It would be painful. It wouldn't be the future we could have had if we mitigated emissions. But we need to calibrate our conversation so that then we start to think about adaptive abilities. And I think that will also lower down the political temperature, if you would allow me the metaphor transfer there. And that would allow for more sensible decision making. Well, the last reasonable man on earth, Salim H. Ali, the author of Earthly Order, How Natural Laws Define Human Life, seems as if we're in an age of profound disorder, but maybe he's right. Maybe we will adapt. I hope he's right. Uh, Salim, uh, congratulations on the new book. What else are you reading these days to keep your own personal order going? Well, you know, I um, there, there are lots of great books coming out. Uh, I, I would uh, urge people to read Ian Bremmer's new book, uh, which has uh, just come out also. And he's actually kindly endorsed my book in his newsletter this morning. Yeah, Ian's uh, an old friend and uh, we've had him on yes. the show before. Yeah, yep, exactly. So uh, it's a, it's a, in many ways a very vibrant time for authors. A lot of great stuff coming out. But I would urge people to make sure they, they go deep and they they should look at where the book is published because it does give an impact in terms of the level of rigor in the review process that's happened. And I chose Oxford University Press partly because I wanted it to be peer reviewed, but it will also have a broad audience because it's the world's largest university press.